0: You guys will find 1st Samuel chapter 18, 1st Samuel chapter 18, we're calling this how to duck spears, how to duck spears. What, by the way, do you do when someone throws a spear at you? You duck. But what do you do after you dodge the danger? What do you do when you're looking at that persecutor, that enemy, that violent, angry person? What do you do when the spear is now in your court, so to speak? And you will now have it in your hands and you have the power to use that spear. What do you do with it? That is one of the questions that the book of Tale of Three Kings addresses. And it in such a memorable way says... David did what nobody else would do. David did not throw it back. David did not use it to end his misery under this mad king named Saul. David left it. David ran. And what we're going to see as we look at this story, and it's a huge chunk of scripture, I understand, but I love to look at the story as a whole. As we look at it, you're going to see this theme of the spear returning again and again. And I've become convinced after reading through it this week that our author of Samuel wants you to see the spear as a symbol, as some sort of a symbolic attachment to Saul. That Saul needs the spear to give him security. Saul needs the spear to give him status and position, and power. And though you may not think, as you look at the story, I'm no villain, I'm no King Saul, I don't throw spears at people, I do want us to consider that there could be a King Saul within all of us. And that you may not be holding and throwing spears, but there's something that you find in your hand that is very significant for your identity. That you need to make sure people see this part of my life, this part of my being. Otherwise, I'm going to feel less than I want to feel like. So we're going to see the story of um, King Saul and David. Now to recap, last week, David fought the giant Goliath. And he did so after he was anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the next king of Israel. Because you may recall that Saul upstaged the prophet Samuel three times, in a sense saying the word of God has no place in my life. I'm going to be king my way. And by the third time, he is rejected by God from being king over Israel. So then Samuel is sent to find the next king. He anoints a young shepherd boy who's intentionally depicted as someone small and insignificant in comparison to the king Saul, who's a head and shoulder above all the rest and thinks he is brilliant stuff and everybody finds him charismatic and attractive. David, the nobody, is anointed as the next king. The spirit of God rushes upon him. He is put to the test right away by battling Goliath. He succeeds when he's the smallest of the of the people in that story. He's the smallest to step forth when the tallest King Saul, who's a whole shoulder and head above everybody else, he's a coward and won't want to, he doesn't want to fight the giant, but this little buddy, this little buddy, this little person, this buddy, he comes forward and he does it. And as a result, the people rightly praise David for his heroism. But this is going to bring some thick tension between this soon to be king, the chosen of God, and the old king rejected of God, who is refusing to let go of his power. By the way, before we go, sometimes it's important for us to know when you're not, when the season that you're in is done. Sometimes it's proper to let go and let somebody else have the seat. King Saul brings a lot of misery on himself, the kingdom, and David, because he cannot let go of that which has given him status over other people. So let's pick up in chapter 18. So remember, David is the hero. He killed the giant. So look at 18 verse 6. As they were coming home, When David returned from striking down the Philistine giant, the woman came out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul as they should. You always celebrate your king's victories. You always allow allow the king into your city with praises. And it would be an offense to a king if you did not open your gates with singing and welcoming him in. So of course, King Saul's coming, everybody's excited, they're singing, they're putting on the show for the king, but, in verse 7, the women saying to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul, you could see this, riding in on his in his victory parade, yeah, I've slain my thousands. Peace, sisters. I'm bringing Israel together. I'm your security. I've done it. And then all of a sudden, that next line comes But David slain 10,000, and Saul's like, Come again? How many did you say I've slain? David has done 10 times more than me? This is the first sign that Saul is not going to like David. Look in verse 8. Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, rather than, oh my goodness, I'm so thankful that the David, the shepherd boy, killed the giant when I couldn't. Nope, he's not angry. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on watching David's every move, stalking him on the internet, everything. (laughs) David had to take his location services off of his phone because Saul was hacking it. Everything was going on. Verse 10. The next day, a harmful spirit. Now remember that word spirit may refer to an emotion. It's ambiguous in the Hebrew. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. And he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. And Saul, first instance, Saul had a spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him. Twice. So it sounds like Saul threw not one spear, but two. And he is so mad. He's in such a bad spirit that this warrior king cannot hit David from across the room. Twice. He missed his chance. So Saul was afraid, verse 12, of David because Yahweh was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. All right. So how did Saul deal with this? David, I missed you with two spears. What I'm going to do now before you poison my wine, I am going to send you into the army. What's Saul doing? He's hoping that David dies in battle. And he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings, for Yahweh was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of David. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Oh, Saul can't win here, Kenny. He? This is what happens when you hold on too tightly to something God has asked you to let go of. He cannot do anything well. He can't pin David to the wall. Everyone's singing David's praises. He tries to get rid of David by throwing him into battle. David just shows and proves himself even more valiant than before. And everybody keeps loving David. No matter what Saul does, the favor keeps pouring upon David. And it's almost like Saul's making things worse. I'm going to put you in a really dangerous position so that you die. Well, that really dangerous position just made David look even more heroic. So, so the tension is... We just started. It's, it's just started. We're in chapter 18. We're going to 31. Light willing, I guess. And Lord. Um, 17. So, Saul's next strategy. Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter, Merah. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight Yahweh's battles. For Saul thought... Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I? So he basically humbled about this. Now, there's a little switcheroo that happens. Saul cheats David, doesn't give him his daughter. So there's another daughter, though, he's going to get. So now in verse 20. Now, Saul's daughter Michal loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul thought, Hmm... Let me give him to her. Let her, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul's like realizing, okay, it's a really good thing actually that I give him one of my daughters because now I have a loyal person next to David. Maybe she can slip some poison in his food. Maybe she can strangle him at night. Maybe. Maybe I can make him pay a bridal price for her that might end David's life. So what does Saul come up with? <laughs> All right, David, you want to marry me, Cole? I need a bridal price. two hundred foreskins of the Philistine army. All right. You know what David does? He goes out there with his men and he does it. And you're going to see him throwing him into the palace. (laughs) What up now? (laughs) Where's my, where's my wife? And Saul cannot get rid of him. So in verse 28, we're still in 18. Verse 28, when Saul saw and knew that Yahweh was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Talk about can't win. He can't get rid of David. He's only looking better and better. And now he's won the heart of his daughter. Michal is not going to work for Saul to kill him. She's on David's side. This guy can't win. So verse 30. Then the princes of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul. So that his name was highly esteemed. All right. Chapter 19. King Saul's son, Jonathan. Who should be the next king in a normal, typical dynasty. The son takes the throne. Jonathan doesn't want it. He recognizes that God has chosen David to be the next king. So they make a friendship. Jonathan works with David to protect him from his father. And they have this conversation about, hey, he's trying to kill you. No, he's not. He wouldn't do that. Well, David's going to find out that it's for sure in verse 8. 19, eight. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from Yahweh came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. Here's the dreaded spear again. Something's going to happen. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. So this is his third attempt, right? But he eluded Saul so that the the spear stuck into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Well, this is it. You can't keep trying this. David's not going to let this happen much longer. David's on the run. He's at his house with Michal, and they find out that Saul has set up an ambush around his house so that when David woke up in the morning and came out, they would seize him and bring him before King Saul, and King Saul would be able to finish him once and for all. Frame him for something stupid. You stole crackers from the palace, something like that. But Michal tells David, hey, there's an ambush. Sneak out tonight. I will help you get away. So you know, classic bed sheets being tied together, going out the window. Um, the next morning they come in. Oh, David's you know sick. Um, they find out he's on the run. Saul's really upset. So Saul sends some people after David. David's going to see the prophet Samuel. Help me, man of God. Help me. Did you not anoint me to be king? What's going on? This king's trying to kill me. What's going to happen to me? And so there in the town of Ramah. He meets Samuel. So Saul sends people to Ramah to get David. And the first batch of soldiers go there and the spirit of the Lord falls upon them and they began prophesying and they can't go anywhere. They're they're filled with the spirit and he's controlling them and these prophecies, it's almost like, think of like a revival is happening in Ramah and you're walking around and all of a sudden you're filled with spirit and you start talking in tongues or something else or prophecies are coming out and you're not going anywhere because the spirit has control over you. This happened again and again. Finally, Saul had to say, I'm going up there myself. And guess what happens? He can't win. Then he, verse 22, 1922, Then Saul himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at uh, Noyath and Ramah. And he went there. And the Spirit of God came upon Saul also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to that place in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul among the prophets? Also? Yeah, this is great. Like now God's using the gifts of the spirit against this mad king they're after david and he's like okay let's let's have a spiritual ambush now how do you like it saul and he's 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 in a way he's humiliating himself too by stripping himself naked in this um prophetic moment now in chapter 20 we have this really tense scene It's the new moon, and I don't know a lot about the um, customs around the new moon, but it seems apparent that at this time, Israel celebrated banquets at the new moon, the mark of the new month, and so Saul's hosting a banquet in his hall, and it's of course expected that Saul's men, like Jonathan, like David, would be present at the banquet, well... Jonathan and David come up with a plan to find out if Saul is really determined to kill David. And they decide, David, how about you don't show up to the banquet? And if my father is okay with it, then we know he's actually cool with you. But if he's really livid that you're not there, we know he has harmful intents for you. So they come up with this story. Oh yeah, David's in Bethlehem doing another festival that his family needed him for. Well, the first night goes by. And Saul thinks, David's seat is empty. What's going on? He No, he can't be plotting to take over the kingdom. He isn't out there rallying people behind my back, is he? Oh, no, no, no. Surely he's just unclean. He touched a dead carcass or something and can't be present for the festival. He'll be here tomorrow. Day two. We're gathering around the table that night. David's not there. Look at 20 verse 26. Yep, this is what I just told you. Yet Saul did not say anything that day for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he's not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Now, I want you to picture this. We're not told where everyone's sitting, but this is how I see it as I read this. You got, you're got you in the king's palace, right? You're at the banqueting table. He's got his nobles, his captains, his advisors all around him. At one head of this long, just picture the typical long king's table, right? At one head of this long table, you have King Saul. At the other head, the other end of the table, you have his son, what Saul thinks is the next king, Jonathan. They are at the ends of the table. The nobles line up on the sides of which David should have been part of, right? There's one glaringly empty seat. Saul, in the midst of the conversations and the eating, puts down his goblet and asks Jonathan, So, where's the son of Jesse? Jonathan answers Saul across the table. David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city. And my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, now Jonathan's saying for this reason, he has not come to the king's table. That does it. You got to see this now. Saul's livid. His face is bright red. Veins are bulging from his neck. He shoves himself back from the table, standing up, chair falling over backward with a clatter. Pounds his fist on the table. Not a noble breathes. Halfway into taking a bite. You're slowly putting that back down. Oh no. Saul's at it again. Verse 30. Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me for he shall surely die. Who wants to talk first? (laughs) And Jonathan answered his father. Not a good move. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? While Jonathan's talking, Saul is losing his mind, and he's walking back toward the wall, ripping a spear off the wall... And in verse 33, Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. Yet yeah, he threw the spear across the table to kill his son. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced David. Wow. That's tense. Like that's, that's good drama right there. And yet through it all, Jonathan is dressed down verbally. His father lays into him. I can't imagine that there are worse words in the Hebrew language that he can string together to his son. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, um, to the shame of your own mother's nakedness. He's just, he is chewing his son out. Jonathan must have left humiliated before all the nobles of the land, and yet he grieves over David. Here we have a lesson of how we are to treat God's anointed, the Messiah, who we now know is Jesus. We're to care about his honor. We're, we're to care about his honor, not our own. And we see in Jonathan an example of how Israel was to live in light of their king and how we are to live in light of our king. So the next morning, of course, you have the famous um, scene where Jonathan has to tell David, yep, it's real. You're done, dude. Run. Run. Um, but he can't tell David, right? He can't tell him because then everyone's going to know there he is. And Jonathan's talking to him. Um, so they have to have this code and Jonathan presets this up with David. Hey, I'm going to shoot three arrows. And if I say the, and when I send the messenger to get my arrows, uh, if I say the arrows are beyond you, David, you got to run. But if I say, no, no, they're right there to your left or something like that. then David, the coast is clear. So they come up with this sign and and they they let it fly. And David knows, I'm done, I'm done. And from this moment, David knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's a fugitive. That night, when he was not present at the king's table, he would not be present at Saul's table again. He is now forever on the run. And Saul, Saul is now going to put leading Israel on the periphery. It's a secondary priority. Pursuing David is my first kingly duty. It's not a good king. So in chapter 21, David comes to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came to David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Himelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. So David tells him this story. I'm, I'm, it's half true. I'm fleeing. Or I'm, I'm leaving the king in a hurry. I'm in a mission that required urgency. I had no time to pack my things. Do you happen to have some bread and a sword? And him the priest says, well, yeah, we bake 12 loaves every day to set before Yahweh. Have those. So David gets to take some bread. And then he says, we also have Goliath's sword here. Do you want it? It does properly belong to you. David's like, yes, there's not a sword like it. Give it to me. So now David has a sword and bread. Seemingly innocent encounter. Except as David's leaving, he notices somebody worshiping at the altar. It's Doeg. And he's one of the advisors of King Saul's administration. Uh oh. David's trying to get out incognito, mm-hmm. but he notices as he's walking by. Doeg just slightly looks up from prayer and makes the ever so slightest eye contact at David and goes back to prayer. This is gonna come back to bite. Chapter um Chapter twenty two. So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. So David is living out in the wilderness. He's a wild man. A cave is his home. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to David and he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. You see what God is doing here. David is on the run and in his lowest point of life, in a cave, dark, dank, damp, hidden, buried, as if he's in a tomb. He's at the end, what he thinks of his life. He's now being, uh, he's being gathered around by people who are in equally dis- disturbing distress They're at the lowest point of their life too. Misery attracts misery, I guess. And there though, there, David has 400 men with him. This is the beginning of his new kingdom. This is like Jesus who laid in a tomb for us, rose, and and there were people gathering around Jesus. There were people who were becoming the first members of a new kingdom. We people, we live under the order of King Saul in this world, don't we? Rulers who protect their power, throw spears at their threats, and aren't always good leaders, and lead with their anger. But Jesus is our King David. It's the new order. It's the new kingdom. We're now under a different kingship. And we need to see from David, how does this kingship look? How are we to follow in it? And one of the first things we see is, is that there is nobody too far gone, too too low, too distressed, too depressed, too bitter in soul. There's nobody that can't come and meet this king in his cave. Verse 6, 22 verse 6, another spear incident. And now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. By now you should know this means something bad is about to happen. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him. Hear now, people of Benjamin. You can see what eats his mind. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? Oops, getting tense again. <laughs> so now they're all like, oh, dear. He thinks we're all collaborating against him. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. This is this is a moment where everyone needs job security at this moment. Everyone needs to save their position. So what does Doeg do? Oh, hey, I saw David. Yeah, he was at the temple or one of the fledgling little worship places and the priest gave him bread and a sword. Now Doeg shouldn't have done this. Doeg knows the priest is not conspiring against the king. But Doeg wants to save his skin. What happens as a result? Round him up. So Saul rounds up the entire priesthood of the city and executes them. And Doeg goes through the town and kills off everybody in it. This is a mad king. And it's getting worse. Chapter 23. Um, So David saves a city. He's now got 400 soldiers with him. He saves a city named Kayla. uh, But they, when they find out that Saul knows he's there, they betray David. They say, Hey Saul, he's here, he's here. Oh, we we're not gonna fight against King Saul. You can have him. So David saves them, they betray him. Sounds something something Jesus went through too. And then Saul begins to pursue David, and here's where you see God's hand at work in our lives. Saul is getting close to David. He's closing in. He's in his position. And then um, if you guys will look at verse 26, 23, 26. Saul went on one side of the mountain, David and his men on the other side of the mountain. They are close. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. David knew he was coming to an end. He was about to be cornered. Saul was almost onto him. And right then, what does God do? National security problem, Saul. You got bigger things to deal with. And David's spared. It got close. But now, chapter 24, we see some of the most important lessons we can learn on David's end. This is going to get bizarre. We have this king who's mad, who's proved he's not worthy of being king. David has been promised that he should be the king. You and I, in our normal human minds, would think, well, I deserve the kingship. He doesn't. So let me take his life out. Let me take him down the first chance I get. (laughs) Here's David's first chance. Well, pardon me. He's had two chances when spears were thrown at him. He pocketed them. Metaphorically. Here, Saul's going to wander into David's cave without knowing David was inside of it. Saul is going to take his clothes off to do business that might take a while and you don't want to be attacked in the middle of. You know what I'm saying? You pull down your trousers. The, the King James, by the way, has the phrase Saul covered his feet. That's happening in the cave. Saul finds a place to relieve himself. David and his men are in there. And his men say, This is it! God has given him into your hand! Do something! So, look at this. 24, verse 4. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which Yahweh said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, this is his royal robe. And robes, for people that were important, often had um, unique embroidery on the robe that said, this is your robe. It was your signature pattern. Saul uh, has that cut off, the little corner that would have been unique to Saul's robe. David cuts that off. There's no denying whose corner of the robe this is. So he cuts it off. And in verse five, afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Okay. David didn't even kill the guy. He simply cut off a piece of his garment and he's feeling guilty. He said to his men, Yahweh forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. Yahweh's anointed to put out my hand against him seeing he is Yahweh's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. <laughs> no clue. So this is great. David comes out when Saul's a safe distance. Saul! Saul! What? David? David? Does this look familiar? Corner of the robe in his hand. And Saul at this point shows how truly insane he is. Because he breaks down and says, Is that you, my son, David? I can't believe it. You're so good to me. And he's all gushy with David. And David's probably rolling his eyes like, I've seen this act before. And so they're like, Okay, sorry, I've been pursuing you. Let's go on with life. And they all go their own way. David to his cave, Saul to his palace. All's good, right? Here's what you're going to see. So, two times, Saul throws a spear at David. He's the spear chucker. David is the spear ducker, two times. Now, we're going to see a second time where David spares Saul's life. He spared it once. You just saw he could have killed him while he was doing his business in the cave. He spares him. David's going to spare Saul a second time. So Saul tries to kill, tries to spear him twice. David's going to spare Saul twice. This is truly, um, remember when Jesus said, hey, you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I say unto you, bless those who persecute you. Love those who hate you. Be good to your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Give your extra cloak. Go the extra mile, right? All those really challenging things Jesus said. David's going to do this. Rather than, you threw a spear, I'm going to throw a spear. Well, that would have been right, I guess. It would have been even. But Jesus said, in my kingdom, we go a step beyond just meeting another person's action. We flip it around. If if one end of the spear is meant to kill, the other end of the spear is meant to bless. And that's what David's going to do. We've seen it once. You're going to see it a second time. But before then, really interesting episode happens. So David is in need of some supplies, 400 men. They're outlawed. They can't just go to the market and get food. So what he's been doing is his men have been shepherding, uh, guarding shepherds and their sheep so that no animals can attack them. No other cowboys can come and raid them. And the shepherds were very appreciative of this. Well, David thought that this would buy him favor from their master, Nabal. Now, the name Nabal means fool. So, foolish Nabal, David comes, sends messengers to him and says, Hey, we've been good to you. We haven't taken anything from you. Would you consider letting us have some supplies? Foolish Nabal says, I'm not even going to give you a shoelace. Get out of here. You would think David would react in some way. Uh, He has a King Saul moment. Look at this in 25 verse 13. David said to his men, when he got news that he was rejected, every man strap on his sword and every man of them, uh, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. There will be blood tonight. So they go. But, but foolish Nabal had a wise wife. Abigail and she sees what a fool her husband is and what's happening everyone's about to die I'm going to stop this so she without his knowledge has the servants make food and she she sends okay she sends the food to David to prevent the wrath of David and David sees her coming a woman on a donkey with supplies she comes down She she comes down to him, bows, and says, Please, please don't do this foolish thing you're about to do. Um, While while Abigail's getting ready, in verse 22, you you hear David is not okay. Still not okay. He's marching in to kill some people. And you see in 22, he says... God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as a single male of all who belong to foolish Nabal. That's when Abigail steps in. And she begins to give David a speech in uh, verse 30. And she's saying to David, when Yahweh has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and his And has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord should have no cause of grief or pains of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. What she's doing, if you didn't catch it, she's stopping him and she's saying, it's in your interest, David. It's in your interest not to have vengeance upon my foolish husband, because if you do, this blood will stain you all the way up to the throne. And people will remember the king who killed somebody out of his wrath. And David realizes you are wise woman. I I you're right, I'm in the wrong. And he puts his sword away. He does what Saul He does what Saul cannot do, and he puts the weapon away. And he's gonna let. Foolish Nabal off the hook. Well, guess what happens? Nabal is feasting. He's drunk out of his mind. His wife whispers to him, Hey, by the way, that David boy that you rejected, I gave him supplies. And Nabal turns stone cold, and ten days later he dies. God strikes him. God did it without David's sword. And so you read in verse 39, When David heard... And this is important. When David heard that Nabal, foolish Nabal, was dead, he said, Blessed be Yahweh, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. Yahweh has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Friends, (coughs) One could easily say that this story has no relevance to the larger story that's happening. We could erase this part of David's fury and Nabal's death. And the story would keep flowing, but here's why it's in there. Because David learns that there is two paths before him. One, I can take care of King Saul and exact vengeance on him. Or two, I can withdraw that wrath and let God take care of King Saul on his own terms. David, in this little story with Nabal and Abigail, learns that if I choose to put the sword away, God will take care of my enemy for me. It said that God exacted vengeance on Nabal. Yahweh has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. So the lesson for David here is that if I do nothing to Saul, God will return the evil of Saul on his own head. So guess what happens next? Chapter 26, you have the second time that David spares Saul's life. This time, it's even better. They find out where Saul's encamped. They go scouted out in the dead of night. And to their unbelief, there is no watchman. Nobody is keeping watch over the camp. They wander on in. Nobody's waking up. They come to the very center of the camp where Saul is protected by everybody sleeping around him, in theory protected. They come they come right to Saul's sleeping bag. They probably make some fun about how he snores and all those things that, you know, people do. They they probably want to paint his fingernails. All those practical jokes, and he got somebody asleep. But, but, this is big business. And David's men are far beyond, oh, shaving cream trick, ooh, water and warm, hands and warm water trick. Like, they're, they're beyond all that. They're like, this is blood trick right now. And, and, next to Saul's head is his jug of water, and of all things, his spear stuck into the ground. And David's men are saying, grab that spear. So help me and run it through him. I will do it, David. If you want, I will do it. And he won't even know who hit him. But David has learned the lesson. Hasn't he? And what does David say in verse 10, 26, 10 David said, as Yahweh lives, Yahweh will strike him or his day will come to die. Or he will go down into battle and perish. Yahweh forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. David learned the lesson. I don't have to do this. God will bring him to his own end. His evil will come back upon his own head, whether it's natural causes, some miraculous God striking him with lightning, or he falls in battle, which spoiler alert, Saul falls in battle. So David can just, you know what? But let's take his spear. Let's mess with him a little. Let's do a little bit of fun with him. Let's take his spear and his water jug. And so they wait till morning rises. And David shouts out, Hey, Abner, Saul's captain of the army. You are pretty lousy at your job. Abner's like, what are you? Who is talking? And he's like, do you recognize these? And Saul's like, oh my goodness, that's my spear. He's like looking around. Where's my spear in my jar of water? How does he have it? But instead, Saul has to like keep his cool in front of everyone. He's like, oh David, my son, I'm so sorry. And he plays that part again. David is not buying it. Um, And David gives him (sighs) <sighs> David gives him this speech. It's like, dude, why? Why are you pursuing me? I'm like a flea. Out of all the things you have to do in your country, I'm a mere flea that you're pursuing. I'm not trying to take over your throne. I've shown you now twice that if I wanted to, I could have. Let me live, dude. And you go do what you're supposed to do. Stop micromanaging fleas and start ruling a country. The whole flea thing is because David says that. If you want to look at verse 20. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of Yahweh. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts (laughs) a partridge in the mountains. (laughs) David is just saying, you've got bigger things to hunt right now, Saul. And so he gives him back the spear. And that's the last we see of Saul's spear. We see that his spear never brings anything good. And it seems that this is the moment when Saul's identity shifts to complete madness. The spear had been lost; it's been given back to him, and it's like his identity is gone. So, in verse twenty-seven or chapter twenty-seven, um, David flees to the Philistines, and he actually begins working for them, which is interesting because look, his own nation won't welcome him, so he's a fugitive. He's a he's a refugee, and the Philistines take him in. Um, Saul. In chapter 28, sees the Philistines coming to fight against him. So what does he do? He prays. Oh, Yahweh, will we have success? How shall we fight them? Yahweh's rejected him from being king. So does he answer? No. So Saul has to go to the only person whom he knows who knows the word of God. Samuel. But guess what has happened? Samuel's died since then. So Saul has to go to a medium. And there he has her conjure up Samuel's spirit from the dead. And there Samuel tells Saul, hey, look, you're done. You're going to die in battle tomorrow. So Saul, the next day, has to go to battle. Chapter 29. Um, The Philistines turn to David and say, hey, dude, we don't know if you're going to turn on us in this battle. So you're not fighting with us. So David and his men are all put out. They're like, what? We've been faithful to you. Um, I don't know. Would David have turned on the Philistines and gained favor from Saul? Or would he have been faithful to the Philistines? We don't know. But the Philistines reject David. So he and his men go back to their city, Ziklag. And when they get there, they discover that the city has been burned to the ground. And their women and children have been kidnapped by a band of raiders from guess who? Remember those people that Saul was supposed to destroy entirely and was rejected from being king because he let them live? Those people were called the Amalekites. And those are the very people that burn David's city, Ziklag, and take his children and his wives, and all the wives and children of his men. And the people are so distraught. Um, they want to kill David. David prays. God gives him strength. They hunt down the Amalekites. They get their women and children back. I find it sad that David had to pay the price for Saul's sin. And sometimes that's the case. Your sin is never private. Somewhere, some way, somewhere down the line, someone might be paying for your sins. And that's tragic. Um, the whole, it only affects me is really not a good excuse to harbor your favorite vice. And then in chapter 31 we come finally to the doom. Now the Philistines fought against Israel and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, poor Jonathan, he dies, and the rest of Saul's sons. The battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it. lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not for fear greatly. Therefore, Saul, remember how evil comes back on your own head? That was a lesson. Saul takes his own sword and falls on it. Somebody else doesn't kill Saul. It's Saul's own weapons of violence against other people that comes back on him and kills him. And so, the Saul dynasty comes to a close. First Samuel ends with the kingship annihilated. And now this persecuted, pressed down, broken, on the run, Little flea of a king is able to rise up to the throne, which we will see in the next book of Second Samuel. The brothers and sisters, the reason I believe this story is worth looking at in its entirety is because this is a truly phenomenal tale of someone who has a right to see something they were promised, but chooses to let God bring it to pass and not take the situation into his own hands or use the weapons or methods of humankind. And he's willing to go through the harder route. He's willing to go hungry. He's willing to put his life on the line, to have the hardship, to be slandered by the court among all the people. Who knows the jokes that were told about David? The parables. The mother saying, hey, if you don't listen and do what we say, you're going to end up like David. You don't want to be like David, do you? The kids straighten up. No, don't make us like David. David puts himself like Philistines. Like Philippians, chapter 2 says that Jesus came in the form of a servant and took the lowest possible place among us humans. He took the form of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. David does this, and David goes, and he keeps going wherever God takes him. And in all of the hardship, David has his moments as a human where he wants to do what King Saul has done to him, but he learns the lesson of I am not here to spear people, I am here to spare people. I am not a spear chucker, I'm a spear ducker. And that's the truth. Our ego, when we get hurt, when we get slandered, when people do something that's unfair and unjust toward us, our initial response is to do it back or to get back at them somehow. But here David learns and practices I will not take Saul down with Saul's methods. Because if I use King Saul's methods, I will be no better than King Saul. God is taking me through this hardship, through this trial, through this suffering, through this confusion, through this lowest point of my life, so that I won't become King Saul. Because there is a spear-holding, spear-throwing, spear-wielding Saul within all of us that has to die. And God uses these really unfair moments in our lives to say, let go of the spear. You are not going to walk around with a spear. That's not the way of the kingdom of Christ. You're going to duck spears, and you're going to turn curses into blessings. You're going to turn spears into sparing. And this is what makes King David the greatest king we see in the Bible. Because he learned, through the school of hard knocks, the school of brokenness, what it looks like to be a king in the order of God's kingdom. And so you, keep going. Don't fear. Don't feel like you have to do what everyone around you is telling you to do. Pick the darn sphere up and throw it back. It's what everyone does, Bill. Everyone does it. You can do it too. Don't buy the cultural normalcy. Conventional culture is rare, it's rarely kingdom culture. You may be crazy, but crazy is better than actual madness, which King Saul descends into. He's not only throw, he's not only upstaging the prophet Samuel, but he's throwing spears at David. He's trying to throw spears at his own son. And then he spears the priesthood. We're descending here, aren't we? From a harmless shepherd boy to your son to the priesthood. How can it get any worse? The night before he dies, he consults witchcraft to talk to the prophet Samuel. This is a king who descended into madness because he held that spear so tightly. And God is taking the spear from our hands so that we won't be mad like him. Yeah, maybe crazy in the eyes of the world, but not mad. And then and then when we're through the wilderness, when we're through the trying time, when the cross is done, three days later, resurrection happens, we ascend the throne. That which God has been preparing us for, that which he's anointed us for, that which he's equipped us for will finally come to fruition if we're willing to do it his way and not the world's way. So be encouraged. If you felt crazy or like you can't keep going or am I sure I'm doing this right Be encouraged and choose the way of David and not the way of Saul. We're going to take communion. Holland's going to come down now. Um, We'll serve it to you since this is kind of tricky and it's dark. Um, And then we'll go. But this communion moment, friends, when you take it, I need you to understand that what we're doing is we're saying yes to the way of Christ. We're saying yes to the Christ who gave this body and gave his blood by taking the cross. He did not choose the spear. He chose the cross, which is the total opposite. Remember when Peter drew the sword and cut off a high priest's ear? That's the way of Saul. And Jesus told Peter, put that away. That's not what we're about. So maybe you've ducked. Maybe you have to keep ducking. Jesus understands that's what communion reminds us of. You guys can pass it out. Um, Maybe you've thrown a spear. This is a great time to say, Father, forgive me. Because communion reminds us that we're forgiven. And choose tonight, friends, choose the way of Christ, the way of David. So, Father, we thank you for giving us this reminder of what you're about and what it looks like to live in.